Well, it's good to be back up here. Last time I got to see you from this perspective, well, a little lower, uh, it was in Christmas time. So uh, it's a privilege to be up here to bring God's word to you this morning. And a beautiful day at that, you know, and I have quite a commute coming out here. And uh, on days like this, I get to see the mountains as I'm driving out here, and it kind of gives me that urge to, um, to go camping, to go hiking. I don't know if you guys ever get that itch. Maybe living out here, you, you, you see it all the time, and maybe you're used to it. But going on trips where you get to hike or camp or anything, those usually end up being really memorable times, for me at least. And one of the most memorable times I can think of, one of the most memorable, memorable trips I took, was a trip to Arizona. One year, About one year after I graduated college, I was 23, I took a couple friends. We planned this Arizona trip, and I really wanted to see the Grand Canyon. Never seen it, and I was going to see it for the first time. And we kind of planned to have these stops along the way, and how about I just lower this? I guess I have one of those booming voices. Is that better? Yeah. So we planned some stops along the way. The, the north room of the Grand Canyon was going to be the big uh, feature of our trip, but the first stop we made, we went to this place called Sedona. Have you ever heard of Sedona? Really serene, really beautiful, and all these red rocks, and you have the green from the trees, and it's known for having amazing, glorious sunsets. We're like, this is a good, easy way to start our trip off, very serene, very relaxing, kind of getting into the spirit of our outdoors road trip. And we went on this really simple trail. It was, it was a walking trail. I think it's one that you would take your kids on, family on, and I think it was about five miles. And, and we're going along this trail, and I'm just in awe of all the scenery that I'm, I'm looking at, but I kind of have this, this desire for adventure, and I really, you know, I'm, I'm desiring to climb rocks and, and to have a challenge. And on this trail, it wasn't really doing it for me. And so I saw a little slope that kind of went off the beaten path. And I decided, well, I'm just going to run up this hillside that kind of goes into a cliff face. And, and I ran up this thing and I, up till the wall went vertical. And then I came back down. My friends had already kept walking without me. So to catch up, I just kind of just leaps and bounds was coming down this hill and I was doing this, not really paying attention, and then my left foot hit the dirt. I guess it was soft dirt, and, and then my ankle rolled, and I heard a snap, crackle, pop, things I've never heard before, felt before in my life. And basically, what I learned later uh, was that I had sprained my ankle, and now I'd, I'd never sprained my ankle before in my life. And so I'm young, and I'm like, oh, just walk it off, you know? And I, and I actually caught up with my friends, just hobbling along, and I was pretty stubborn. I'm like, well, maybe the pain will go away. And, and eventually, my ankle swelled up to about the size of a baseball. And I really couldn't walk. And, and one of my I, I grabbed the branch trying to use it as a crutch. It was so pathetic. And one of my friends had to give me a piggyback ride all the way back. <laughs> and I guess this is uh, reflecting on my, my foolishness in my youth, or at least you know my, my college days or post, early post-college days. And uh, during this trip, you know, I was pretty much careless, and I, I, I was paying more attention to my surroundings. I mean, you couldn't blame me, right? Beautiful place. I was paying more attention to those surroundings than I, I was to something as simple as where I was taking my steps and how I was walking. And if I just paid careful attention to how I was walking, I, I would have avoided that injury. I probably could have made it to this day still sprain-free, never having a sprain in my life. I would have avoided the sharp, unrelenting pain, that nasty swelling that I had, I would have avoided the, the shame of having my friends being slowed down by me. I was dead weight for the rest of the trip uh, and basically becoming an unnecessary burden to them. 
And I would have had a much more enjoyable trip because I would have been able to do a lot more. I mean, all the things I wanted to do, basically, well, there you go. You wanted to climb stuff, and you're not going to be able to do much now. Now, here's the thing. I still completed the trip. I still had a wonderful time. It's still one of my, my favorite memories, this trip. But it was not as great as it could have been. Why? Simply because I didn't give any thought to how I was walking. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage that calls us to carefully to look carefully how we walk. And of course, it's not talking about our, our physical steps that we're taking. It's talking with a, uh, about a matter of far greater importance. It's talking about how we're living our lives. And in, in this passage, walk is a metaphor. It's, it's basically your lifestyle, your pattern of living, your daily activity. And this includes your attitudes, your actions, and your, your activities. So turn with me to Ephesians 5. In verse 15, and that's on page 978 in the Bibles that we provide. But Ephesians 5, and the verses we're going to look at this morning are verses 15 to 21, and primarily verses 15 to 18, uh, but we'll touch on the final few. Let's read this together. Look carefully, then, how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the past two Sundays, we take a note of Paul's point in his letter to the Romans that believers are united with Christ. And this includes being united in his death. We've seen that the last couple of weeks. And as a result of this, the reality is that we have died to sin in order that, Paul writes in Romans 6 verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead, that we too might walk in newness of life. In our passage this morning in Ephesians, I thought it would be a good uh, complement to what we're looking at in Romans. It shows us that walking in newness of life includes walking in wisdom. And before we, we start to look at each of these verses, I want to just give you some background about the city of Ephesus because we want to understand that everything we're reading in Scripture, this is real people writing to real people, living in the real world, dealing with real problems and challenges in life at real points in time in history. And here's the thing about Ephesus. It was a major commercial Roman city in the vast Roman Empire, It was a port city on the western coast of Asia Minor. That's right across from Greece, a very significant location, which made it one of the largest trading centers in that region. And its estimated population was 200 to 250,000 people. So it was considered actually the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. And this ranked it only behind Rome and Athens. It was basically the third biggest city in the known world. And Ephesus was home, most well-known for its 
temple, its massive temple to the goddess Artemis, and, and the Romans called her Diana. And that's considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it's actually, supposedly, was the largest known building in the world at the time. And it also, Ephesus had a large theater, could seat up 24,000 people. Another thing about Ephesus is that it was a major center for the practice of magic arts. And we actually see a little bit of that when we're reading Acts. And we see when Paul comes to Ephesus, a lot of the people that start to believe they're divulging of their practices and they're burning their books and it totals up to like 50,000 talents of silver, uh, which basically means a lot of money and a lot of people burning a lot of those books. So it's a major center for the practice of magic arts. And we're not talking about David Copperfield here. We're talking about psychics, mediums, astrologers, dealing with the occults. So we hear that Ephesus has commerce, it's got entertainment, it's got psychics, and false religion galore. Sounds a lot like L.A., doesn't it? Kind of Southern California in general. Well, the Ephesians, like us, they were dealing with life in the real world, with all of its wickedness and busyness and distractions and temptations. I wanted you to see that Ephesus, we can relate in a lot of ways to their situation. And here's a little... History of the Ephesian church. Paul briefly visited it, visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey. He, just, he was there very briefly, went to the synagogue, talked to some of the Jews, but he, he moved on. And the church wasn't really established there until his third missionary journey. He had come back, and he ended up spending, at that point when he returned, a total of three years in that city, proclaiming Christ and discipling those who had come to faith in Christ. And by the time he left, the church had grown significantly, and it even had a body of elders, had a group of elders that were going to continue overseeing and shepherding uh, the flock, uh, the congregation that was there in Ephesus. And Paul was able to visit, by the time he left, after those three years, he was able to visit about a year later, and he was only able to visit the elders, and he met up with them at a different location. But then after that, he, he traveled on, he wanted to go to Jerusalem, and what happens to him? He ends up getting arrested. He's put under house arrest, or he's put in custody for basically two years. And then he's transferred to Rome because he appeals his case to Caesar, and he's put under house arrest and is kept in custody there for two years. And it's from that place, from Rome, in custody, that he wrote his letter to the Ephesians. So by the time he's writing them this letter, it's been about five years since they've seen him. And so that's kind of what the occasion is for, for the letter, it, uh, given the time that it had passed, Paul had sent uh, a, a faithful companion of his, Tychicus, he sent him to the church in Ephesus in order to give them an update basically on how he was doing. They wanted to know, and along with Tychicus came this letter. And in this letter, Paul gave the Ephesians further teaching concerning the glorious realities of their salvation in Christ, their new life in Christ, and how they were to live as a result of that. And basically, in the first three chapters, he explains to them their position in Christ, their, their identity in Christ. And then in chapters 4 through 6, the second half of the book, he exhorts them to live in a manner consistent with who they are in Christ, with that new life that they have in Christ. So that's the basic outline of the book. Chapters 1 through 3, your position in Christ. In chapters 4 through 6, here's how you are to live as a result. The Christian's practice. And here's essentially the message he wrote. In chapter 1, he said, and again, you're going to see this phrase, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. He's talking about the realities of their salvation, their union with Christ. 
In chapter 1, he says, In Christ we have been blessed by God with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And then in chapter 2, he reminds them that in their lives before Christ, they were spiritually dead, driven along by their carnal desires, following the course of the world under the influence of Satan. And if you look back to chapter 2, right there in verses 1 through 3, you can see that. And this is true of all of us. Before Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." And so that was their life before Christ. And he also said that before Christ, your, your minds were darkened. Your minds were futile. That means they were useless. And your hearts were hardened. And this was how you used to live. That's what he's saying. This, this used to be you. This was you before Christ. But by the merciful grace of God, you were made alive in Christ. And he says, chapter 2, verse 10, that you were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. And so he's setting up what he's going to get to. And in getting to chapter 4, verse 1, Paul called the saints at Ephesus. And really, I mean, we can read this. It, it, there's not much uh, unpacking we have to do. And a lot of it we can just apply directly to ourselves because he's talking about our identity in Christ and how we're to live. Chapter 4, verse 1, he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of, of the calling to which you have been called. And in chapters 4 through 5 and on into 6, we're going to see this this repeated statement, uh, command to walk in a manner worthy. And it talks about the Christian walk, and it's right up here. This is kind of how, how the rest of the book breaks down, at least when he's talking about walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It means walking in unity, and he goes on to talking about walking in righteousness and holiness, and then walking in love, and then walking as children of light, and then walking, where we are in our passage, as wise people. And really, this section goes from verses 15 all the way to chapter 6, verse 9, and then he talks about standing firm in the warfare and putting on the armor of God. But we see this, this, this theme in Paul's epistle, and he's talking about our life our lifestyle, how we're living our lives, and how we are to live because we have new life in Christ and what that newness of life should look like. And so this morning, what we're going to see is that in order to live wisely, so back in in verse 15, in order to live wisely in a fallen world where, where sin and evil abound, there are two priorities, essentially two priorities that every Christian needs to maintain, that you need to maintain. First of all, you need to understand the Lord's will. You need to be understanding the Lord's will. And the other one, the other priority, is that you need to be spirit-filled. That's essentially what he communicates in this passage. In your outline in the bulletin, basically we're going to look at this, this call to live wisely. That's verses 15 and 16. And then we're going to look at this, this priority of understanding the Lord's will, verse 17. And then this priority of being spirit-filled, verse 18. And 
like I said, I included up to 21 because those are connected with that priority or that command, that thought, that be spirit-filled. And most of our time we're going to spend, it's going to be 15 through 18. So if we haven't gotten to 19 yet, don't panic. You know, we're just going to kind of breeze through those at the end. But look at verse 15. Let's read it. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And in the previous section, Paul had just finished explaining to them that they need to be walking as children of light. You need to be walking as children of light, which basically means that we're not only to be separate from sin, uh, sinful activity, which he calls the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but as children of light, we're also to be exposing it. And you can think of what that means, confessing it, repenting of it ourselves, but also confronting brothers and sisters in Christ who are in sin, confronting them in love that they might repent and be restored. And so we're not to be tolerant of sin, but to expose it for what it is. It's evil, it's wickedness, it's, it's rebellion against God. And in light of this, Paul says we need to carefully consider how we're living. If you're going to be light, well then you need to be carefully consider how, considering how you're actually living yourself. If we be the light of the world, then we need to see too that we're not living as unwise people but as wise people. And here's the thing. Being wise, it's not the same as being intelligent or smart or well-educated. Okay? Being wise, when we, we talk about wisdom in Scripture, it's not merely having knowledge, but it's having knowledge and applying it. Wisdom is, it's basically, it's insight put into practice. It's both of those things. It's, it's skillful living. When we talk about being wise, it's being uh, skillfully living, putting your knowledge, right knowledge, into right practice. And Scripture says that true wisdom, it doesn't come from men. It's not something that we're called a be wise, okay, let me just try to muster that up, and, and, or let me try to uh, perhaps just read more books or something. Maybe I'll just become wise. And wisdom doesn't originate within us. It doesn't come from other men who can teach us it or give it to us. Proverbs says, if we're relying on men, if we're relying on ourselves, Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And another proverb, whoever trusts in his own mind is what? Is a fool. Trusting in your own mind. True wisdom, the Bible says, comes from God. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask who? God. Ask God. James says that true wisdom is from above. And Paul, in Colossians, his letter to the Colossians, he says that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found ultimately in Christ. And so since true wisdom comes from God, you won't have it until you have a right relationship with him. Uh, There's no such thing as a wise unbeliever. The fool in his heart says there is no God. The fool in his heart is living in rebellion against his creator. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom doesn't begin until we have a right relationship with God. Knowledge of the Holy One is in sight. Proverbs also says, trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And finally, Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, he said, because of God... You are in Christ Jesus. You who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, 
You are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption, but Christ has become to us our wisdom. So living as unwise, you have to remember this. Before Christ, living as unwise unwise was all that we could do. That's all we could do. We didn't have any options. Paul reminds us of that in chapter 4 in Ephesians. He says, you, Christians, must no longer walk as the Gentiles, the unbelieving Gentiles do, in the futility, the uselessness of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And that's interesting, too, because a hardened heart results in a darkened mind. You know, sometimes we say, man, if I, if I just had, like, the right arguments or the clever way to explain the gospel to people, you know, then they would believe. If I could just deal with scientific evidence and show proof for a creator, the problem is we're thinking it's merely an intellectual problem, and that's why people don't believe. The problem starts here. A hardened heart leads to that ignorance, that darkened mind. It's a moral issue. However, when we were saved, we received Jesus Christ. He became to us our wisdom, our wisdom from God. And here's the thing. We read that verse, but what this doesn't mean is this. It doesn't mean that we can no longer live unwisely. Okay? Would you agree with that? Do you feel at times you've done some foolish things? At times that you're not really living wisely? What this means is that because of Christ, we're now able to live wisely. And this is why Paul wrote this command. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then he goes on in verse 16. Look at what he says. Making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Notice that it says the time. Not just time, but making the best use of the time. This is referring to a definite fixed period of time. What is it? I guess as far as the course of history is concerned, we could say that, well, we live in the fixed period of time between the Lord's ascension into heaven and his return for his bride, the church. And this could happen at any moment. I mean, that's a, that's a definite period of time. However, since Paul is addressing the Ephesians, how they're to live their lives, their daily lives, and since the time is something that they are personally to put to good use. I believe Paul's rather referring to the time that each person has been given on the earth. The days that you have, the time that each and every one of you has been given. Have you ever thought about the fact that your days on the earth are numbered? That your time is fixed? It's been uh, determined by God? Look at what the psalm says. David wrote this, he, and he, he's writing this psalm to God, and he's, he says, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So I believe we can not even just say that the time is relating to our earthly lives, but we can be even more specific and understand that the time Paul is referring to is our earthly life as believers from the moment we were born again until the moment we die or until Christ returns. 
And I think that makes sense. I think that fits well with what he's talking about. Because guess what? Could you make any good use of the time before Christ? Really? Before Christ saved you, you really couldn't because you were spiritually dead in your sins. You were darkened in your understanding. But with our new life in Christ, we've been given the time in which we are to live, as Peter said, no longer for human passions but for the will of God. And look at what Peter says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So that time is past. Think of it this way. That's your old life. That's the time of your old life, and now you are living in the time, the fixed time of your new life in Christ here on the earth. From the moment you're born again until death or until Christ returns. And here's what we need to remember. Although God knows how many days each and every one of us has, although he's numbered them before any of them came to be, he's fixed it. We don't know that. We don't know how many days we have, right? At any moment, we could either die or Christ could return. He could come back today, tomorrow. We could die, not to be morbid, but we could die any moment, couldn't we? We can't take that for granted. And here's the great news that, I mean, either way, we get to be with Christ, right? I mean, we can rejoice in that. We have the Christian hope. It's a living hope. And we can, like Paul, say, hey, you know, if, if I die, I gain Christ, right? I mean, it's better, better to die and, and be with Christ. So we have that hope. However, the question that remains is, how are we using the time that God gives us until then? I mean, yeah, you'll die one day or Christ might return, but in the meantime, here's the issue. How are you using the time that God has given you in your new life in Christ? His purpose was not to immediately take us out of the world, right? Do you remember Jesus' prayer about his disciples? Not to take them out of the world, but to leave them in the world and to protect them from the evil one. God has a purpose for us in leaving us here. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we'll be with him. But for a time, he's left us here. So the time that we've been given is a, a stewardship. It's something that's been gifted to us and trusted and trusted to us. So really ask yourself this question. Are you being a good steward of the time that God's given you? Could you say that right now? If you, if you really think about how you're living your life, are you be, is it something you would say, I'm being a good steward of the time that I've been given on this earth in my new life in Christ? I mean, isn't it your desire in the end to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant? We all would like to hear that, right? Well, how are you using your time? The good and faithful servant, well, that's the one who lives wisely, and he makes the best use of the time. And here's the interesting thing. Greek text, when it says make the best use of the time, it literally says we are to be redeeming the time. And Basically, to be eagerly buying it up. That's the idea. Eagerly buying up the time. Another way to put it is that we're to be capitalizing on the opportunities that come our way. We're to seize every opportunity to live wisely and to grow in wisdom. And here's the thing. It's, it's kind of hard to look back and, and consider how much time and opportunity we've already wasted, isn't it? You know, I look back on my past, and, and, and sometimes I refer to a number of those years as the wasted years, and I can't get them back. Wasted opportunity, wasted time, but don't let that wastefulness continue in your life. 
You know, repent of that and do what Paul's saying. Make the best use of your time. You can turn right now and start doing that. So he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. Why? Second half of verse 16. Because the days are evil. Paul explained earlier in his letter that this fallen world, it's under the power and influence of who? Prince of the power of the air, Satan, our adversary, the father of lies, the devil. Unbelieving mankind. Here's what it, it's not necessarily, I mean, not specifically talking about the rocks and the trees and the birds. It's, it's talking about really the world as in referring to unbelieving mankind. Basically, I mean, the whole majority, the majority of the human race is said to be following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, actively working in them, in the sons of disobedience. And until Christ returns to the earth and establishes his kingdom, well, we could say that this world is Satan's domain by God's permission. And ever since the fall, really, Satan's been leaving unbelieving mankind and continued rebellion against God. That's been the way the world has been since Genesis 3. Thousands of years. So that really puts, puts, puts things in perspective about how we're to use the time. And here, here's a wonderful quote from a guy named John Calvin, one of the great reformers and part of the leading the Reformation 500 years ago. But listen to what he says. This is somebody who lived 500 years ago, but it sounds like somebody could have written this today as well. He writes this, the days are evil. In relation, talking about this passage, the days are evil. Everything around us tends to corrupt and mislead so that it is difficult for godly persons who walk among so many thorns to escape unhurt. Such corruption having infected the age, the devil appears to have obtained tyrannical sway so that the time cannot be dedicated to God without being in some way redeemed. And what shall be the price of this, of its redemption? To withdraw from the endless variety of allurements, temptations, which would easily lead us astray. To rid ourselves from the cares and pleasures of the world and, in a word, to abandon every hindrance. So think about that. If we really were doing that, if we were withdrawing from the endless variety of temptations that would lead us astray, if we were really ridding ourselves from the cares and pleasures and preoccupations of the world and throwing off everything that's really hindering us and and walking in wisdom, our lives would be radically different, wouldn't they? Wouldn't your life be radically different? And here's the thing. The Christian life, and in Romans we're talking about sanctification, it's not... Passive, carefree living. You don't come to faith in in Christ and then just spiritually coast through life. The course of this world is it's constantly moving away from God. Remember that. Think of it as the current. Constantly drifting away from God and you will drift right along with it unless you are deliberately and diligently and proactively walking in wisdom. Get that? So if we're not really actively walking in wisdom, 
walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, walking in obedience to God's word and his will to be conformed more and more to his likeness, I mean, we will drift. And Paul says, hey, in Romans 12, we'll get there. Right, Jeremy? We'll get there. (laughs) He says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So this is the call. Seize the opportunities on a daily basis. Live wisely. Be living wisely. And Paul then explains to us what we need to do in order to be walking in wisdom. So here's where he gets to the priorities. There's essentially two that you must maintain in order to live wisely in this world. The first priority is this. You need to understand and be understanding the Lord's will. Verse 17. Look at verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if you are not carefully seeing to it that you're, you're living wisely, you'll find yourself drifting along with the course of the world, as we said, and you will become foolish. It's possible for you to become foolish. You will lack good judgment and basically lack good sense. The wisdom of God, well, the very opposite of that that's offered to us on a daily basis, really crammed down our throats or shoved in our faces is the wisdom of the world. Oh, the world's got wisdom to offer. The world's got a wisdom that it's, it's broadcasting constantly through internet, music, television, all sorts of entertainment, through advertising, and through family members, through friends, neighbors, coworkers, you name it. I mean, the world's wisdom is out there and is being broadcasted constantly. And don't, don't underestimate your susceptibility to it, the fact that you can be easily persuaded or influenced or somehow affected by that. And think about this, too. Music, for example. I remember growing up when I was a teenager, and I was listening to a lot of rock music and all that stuff, and, and, and growing up in the church, you know, I really was like, I'm just getting all the Christian music and reading the lyrics and, and all that, and, and which I think was great. But then at some point, I was kind of like, oh, I really like this band. Oh, this is cool. And I, I started listening to all this Secular music, and again, I'm not denouncing like anybody who listens to secular music. I still do, but but the point is, I had the illusion that I, being a Christian, you know, wouldn't be affected. I just like the music, so I'm not really going to be affected by, uh, by the messages that I'm constantly hearing. And I, you know, I listened to like punk rock, and it was all about rebelling against authority and crudeness and all of that. And guess what? You know what? In hindsight, I can say, oh, it was it was affecting me. It was shaping my thinking. It had an influence on me, even though at the time I was like, no way. Oh, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. So we can't underestimate that. If we're not careful, if we're not living wisely, we can start easily buying into the world's wisdom. It's basically, and the general message is this, let nothing keep you from doing what you want. Do what feels right. Do what feels right. Follow your hearts. Be your own master. Answer to no one and make a name for yourself. That's what you need to do with your life. Right? Fame, fortune. Make a name for yourself. It's all about you. Well, in some way, that comes out in every every aspect of life. That's the world's wisdom. That's not the way God tells us how to live. And Paul warns, Do not become foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And 
here's what we often think. When we hear the word, will of the Lord, we often think of it as it pertains to like major decisions in life. I'm trying to figure out what the Lord's will is, you know, if I should take this job or go on this career path or, or if I should marry this person, what's God's will for my life? We think with like these big major decisions in life, and that's kind of usually what we relegate it to. But the focus here, what, is on the daily Christian walk, your daily living. And so Paul's speaking of the Lord's will as it pertains to the choices you make on a daily basis, right? Now, obviously, this will include those big decisions. I'm not discounting those. But we, we need to focus that, our daily walk. We need to be understanding what the Lord's will is, and day in and day out, be living according to it. And God's will, contrary to maybe what you've heard or the way people talk about it, it's not some elusive thing that we're constantly having to chase after. Oh, there, where's God's will? It's out there. And it's not some hidden thing that we're supposed to like try to figure out. Well, God has a will for me. I have no idea. I mean, you just need to, like, I don't know, like, pray harder, longer. I don't know. That's not it. God, oh, he's revealed his will, his will. He's very specifically and clearly revealed his will right here, and it's his word. And here's the thing. Sometimes we can say God's will, it's explicitly stated in Scripture, clear as day. You can't get around it. Oh, here's God's will for my life. I, I, that's clear. A good example of this, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting verse 3. For this is the will of God. Oh, you got my attention. That makes it really easy, doesn't it? Okay, I'll start with that. Your sanctification. Romans 6 or 8, that's where we're in here at Summit. Jeremy's preaching through. Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That's God's will for you, specifically. There you go. Start applying that. Other times in Scripture... God's will is implied. So it's not explicit, but it it is implied. And everywhere in Scripture, basically what we find, what we can find are are timeless principles based on God's character and purposes. Uh, So even reading Ruth, you know, we we can say, well, there's not like an instruction saying, you Christian, God's will for your life is this. So nothing explicit, but when we read it, we see that there are principles based on God's character and purpose that really just transcend time, and really we can apply to our own lives. And Jeremy was kind of showing you how how we see the significance of that book for our own lives. So sometimes it's implied, and it's God's will for us to live by these principles. You see that? So God's will is clearly revealed in Scripture, sometimes explicitly, sometimes it's implied. But here's the bottom line. Everything you need to know regarding the Lord's will, it's found in Scripture. It's found in the Bible. Take that to the bank and truly believe it, too. Sometimes we, we have a hard time accepting that, but everything I really need to know, not I learned in kindergarten, I, I find in God's word regarding his will for me. And when you stop believing that, guess what? You start to become foolish. When you seek, for example, counsel from a mature brother or sister in Christ, and they point to God's word, but you say... Well, sometimes we might say, well, I know what it says, but 
Well, my, my, my situation's unique. It's really, it's just unique. It doesn't really, you know, it's, it's special. It's different. What did Paul say? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Ooh, okay. Sometimes somebody points us to God's word and will say, I know, I know what it says, but you know what? This is not realistic. I can't do that. But you can. It's just that you won't. Well, that's not wisdom, is it? That's foolishness. And when you think about, or when you think that God's word doesn't apply to your situation, when you think that, or it's somehow your situation exempts you from obedience to Scripture, to God's word, you're on your way to becoming foolish. Paul said, don't become foolish. Understand what the will of the Lord is. You need to understand what he's revealed in his word, and this starts with knowing what the Bible says, right? We can start there. We need to be reading it, hearing it read. We need to know what it says, but this isn't enough. You also need to know what it means by what it says, right? Man, we're talking about this. This is how to properly study and interpret the Bible. Well, I need to start by being clearly aware of everything that it does say, but then I need to know what it means by that. That's interpretation, and I need to do that rightly, and that's going to require me to study it for myself, and it's going to require me, in addition to studying, to be learning from faithful teachers. We need teachers. Christ gave teachers to the church so that we can be growing in our understanding of God's will revealed in his word. And guess what? You don't need to go to seminary to do that. You don't need to have a high IQ to do that. Be really intelligent. First in your class, don't need to, to be a, an egghead, you know, to understand the will of the Lord that he's revealed in your word to read it and to study it and to understand and interpret it properly. But it is worth uh, studying Scripture. Uh, it, it takes time, it's going to take effort, and it's going to take discipline. Remember, I mentioned this last week. Uh, I heard this preacher say this, little discipline, little godliness. Standard discipline, standard godliness. We're going to grow in godliness. It takes discipline, effort, labor. But this is the greatest and most rewarding pursuit you can have in your life knowing the will of God, knowing his word, and living by it. And keep this in mind, in light of that, true understanding, when he talks about understand, true understanding, it's knowledge that travels from the head to the heart and is lived outwardly. It's basically, it's, it's proper comprehension that leads to proper conduct. Remember that wisdom, we said this, it's, a, it's applied knowledge. It's knowledge that's applied. It's skillful living. And when Paul says we need to understand the Lord's will, he's speaking of seeking to know it in order to obey it. So when you get to the obedience part, that's when you're walking in wisdom. You can know a lot. Oh, there are a lot of people who know a lot about the Word of God, but they don't, they don't walk in it. They're not, living, they're not walking in wisdom. And they've become foolish. So the priority of the Christian, your priority must be to understand the Lord's will in order to live wisely. And we don't always obey, even though we understand the Lord's will, like I said. In fact, think about this. If it was a matter of depending solely upon ourselves and relying on our own willpower, you know what? We wouldn't be able to obey it. We're dependent on God and on the, the Spirit's work in us to enable us to walk in a manner, a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. So it's not just in our own strength and willpower. Remember that. It is something that we have to work at, but remember that we're totally reliant upon and dependent upon 
the power of God, the enablement of God, and the resources He's given us by His spirits. And so this leads to Paul's second point, his, the second priority we need to have wise living. He says this, moving on from that, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul, once again, he starts with a negative command, and he's kind of making these contrasts so we better understand the, what he's really telling us to do, and he starts with this command, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And you know what? I mean, we could probably all agree with this. Drunkenness, that's probably the, the express route to foolishness. That's taking the fast lane to folly because it dulls your mind. It, it clouds your thinking uh, to the point that you lose your self-control and you're, you're careless. You're unconcerned about any consequences of your action. And so Paul says that drunkenness, it results in debauchery. You know what debauchery is? Excessive indulgence and physical pleasures Fleshly desires, bodily appetizers, just excess, and it's reckless. Carefree, don't care about consequences. I'm just going to overindulge myself. And the Greek word translated as debauchery, it's the direct opposite of the word that means preservation. So basically, the general idea is wastefulness. Wastefulness. People say, I'm wasted, you know, but it really are. And it's wastefulness when they do that to themselves, when you do that. This is quite the opposite of making the best use of the time, right? And we're talking about not being wasteful. Now, Paul says in order to live wisely, you need to be filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit. What does he mean by that? It's important for us, first of all, we hear that. Maybe certain concepts come to mind when we hear fill. But we have to remember the Holy Spirit is God. He is the third divine person of the Trinity. He's not some spiritual force that we need to tap into and somehow receive more of. Okay? He's not a, a liquid or a force, right? He's a person. He is God, the Holy Spirit. Also, it's important for us to understand that being filled with the Spirit is different than being indwelled with the Spirit. Did you catch that? So, to be filled with the Spirit, it's not talking about being indwelled. Because at the moment of your salvation, the Holy Spirit fully and permanently took up residence in you. That's indwelling you. He is indwelling you. And every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And that gives them spiritual life. I mean, that causes the new birth. The Holy Spirit resides within every true Christian. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. So by saying be filled with the Spirit, Paul does not mean that we receive like a larger amount of the Spirit. Does that make sense? So how much of the Holy Spirit does this Christian have versus this one? The same. The Holy Spirit indwells both of them. What exactly then does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How do we understand this? First of all, we need to consider exactly what is being said. And I don't want to get too technical here. But just to explain the reasoning behind this, the grammar in the original language seems to show better support for this following translation. To read it this way. Be filled by means of the Spirit. And in addition to that, the fact that the language seems to be communicating that by means of the Spirit, not with, but by mean, there's a difference. 
The content of the letter also shows better support for this idea, this translation. If we looked at back in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes this. If we looked at when, how he says fill, he uses the word fill throughout this letter. He says, and he, God, put all things under his, Christ's feet, and gave him, that is Christ, over, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So right here we have Christ is said to fill all in all. And here's a helpful quote from a commentator. He said, Christ is the one who completely fills everything. That is the whole of creation, the earthly and the heavenly, comprising all of humanity as well as the entire angelic realm, especially the rebellious powers. What does he mean? Well, he says the nature of this filling is to be explained, not to be explained in a physical or spatial sense. I mean, he's not talking about you know, Christ being diffused everywhere. He says Christ pervades all things. He fills all things with his sovereign rule. He is Lord. Now let's go back to Ephesians. Paul writes in chapter 3, he prays this, that you may be filled with what? All the fullness of God. What does that mean? Well, God's power and perfections, his moral attributes. I mean, we're being conformed to Christ-likeness, to the image of our Creator. So we're going to be filled with the fullness of God. That's Paul's prayer. And in chapter 4, he says this, He, Christ, again, he, he writes, He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So again, he's shown in this letter that Christ is the one who fills all things, And when he talks about us, his prayer is that he might fill you with the fullness of God. And then we get to chapter 5. And then we have this statement, be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. And it's important to understand that just so, because again, you know, we can still say be filled with the Spirit, but it's important to understand what we mean by that. Because again, it always usually makes us think about liquid or power or force or something like that. So basically we can read verse 18 like this. Be filled with the Spirit in our our Bibles, our translations. We should understand that that command means this. We are to be filled by Christ, by means of the Spirit, with the fullness of God. Uh, Basically, through the Spirit, Christ fills His church with the fullness of God. And this isn't just talking about us individually, because not only are you individually a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the church body as a whole is referred to as a temple of the Holy Spirit. So, now that we have a clear understanding of that, we need to understand, have a better idea of what is actually being said then uh, and what it means. To be filled by the Spirit, by means of the Spirit, it's not to have more of Him, but essentially what He means by this is it's for Him to have more of you. Does that make sense? It's not that you need more of the Spirit, it's that He needs to have more of you. And Paul's command not to get drunk with wine illustrates this concept. So you read that, I mean, he's, he's making a contrast, and, and they're related in some way. So he's illustrating that. When someone's filled with wine, he's said to be under the influence, and his, his state is changed, right? Completely altered. He loses control of himself. He's characterized by folly, indecency, overindulgence, emotional extremes, immorality. Proverbs says, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever's led astray by it is not wise. But the filling of the Spirit, then, is to be understood as coming under the influence or control of the Spirit, and essentially it's being led by the Spirit. 
And we see that elsewhere, that, that, for, that statement, be led by the Spirit. That's the idea here. So unlike the indwelling of the Spirit in you, He's indwelling you. The filling of the Spirit, it's not, it's not a constant reality. It's something we've been commanded to allow to be done. So for the life of the Christian, I mean, the fact that Paul is commanding this for you to be filled with, with, uh, by means of the Spirit, it means that all believers are capable of being filled and capable of not being filled. That is led by, under the influence of, and guidance and control of the Holy Spirits. You see that? This is sanctification. That we have a part to play and we can hinder it due to our own disobedience and our own stubbornness and rebellion and foolishness. It also means that being filled is dependent upon our willingness to allow the Spirit to lead us. You need to be openly willing to allow the Spirit to lead you. So for Christians... Basically what Paul's saying in this passage, he's saying to be living wisely, you must understand the Lord's will, which he's revealed in his word, and you need to be allowing the Spirit to lead you so that you walk in obedience. Here's a question. How do you know? How do you know if you're you're allowing the Spirit to lead you? I mean, I get it. Understand, that's an active command. Understand the Lord's will. Be understanding it, but... Be filled by means of the Spirit. It's something that's being done. How do, I, how do I do that? How do I know that I am being filled with the Spirit? What's the evidence? First of all, you're submitting to God's Word. Rather than gratifying your sinful desires, following the ways of the world, I mean, you're submitting to God's Word. That's a sign of being filled by means of or led by the Spirit. Second, we could turn over to Galatians. Paul talks a lot about the fruit of the Spirit which is evidence in your life of the Spirit's work. It's, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see that in your life? Does that characterize your life? If it doesn't, well, it's telling you one of two things. Either there's no power of God in your life and you aren't saved because you haven't truly repented and put your faith and trust in Christ, or it's just saying as a believer, you are not allowing yourself to be Filled by means of the Spirit. And you're not walking under His influence. However, we could stay right here in Ephesians 5, because like I said, verses 19 through 21, this is related. Paul goes on and points out some other results of being Spirit-filled. Look at verse 19. So he says, Be filled with the Spirit, be filled by means of the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And so from 19 to 21, what he's not doing is saying, here's how you be spirit-filled. You need to sing a lot. Sing. No, he's saying it's the result of it. This is evidence. This is like the fruit of the Spirit. So spirit-filled Christians, basically when we, what we see in this verse, they're, they're joyful Right? And they regularly get this. This isn't in isolation. They gather together and they sing praises to God wholeheartedly from the bottom of their heart. This is genuine, wholehearted praise and adoration and corporate singing. And the songs, when he says addressing one another to songs, like that sounds weird. You know, speak to one another in songs. But think about it. Do you do that? Are there certain songs that, 
that have been uplifting, that have pointed you to the truths of God's word, and you, you somehow, you know, you, you might share that with someone, you know, the, the chorus or a particular verse. I mean, we do that. There are songs like that. And the point is, if we're, we're so, if we're being filled with the Spirit and we're so joyful in that, and we're praising God, I mean, we're going to have songs ready on our lips and we're going to be building each other up and encouraging one another, even with the songs that we sing. Look at verse 20. Here's another result. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So spirit-filled Christians, they're grateful. Not only when life's pleasant, right? But when it's unpleasant. He says always and for everything. We give thanks to God not only in, for the blessings, but also even for our trials and testing because we know that's for our good according to God's good purpose, which he is working out. And we give thanks in Jesus' name, basically based on who he is and what he's accomplished. That's what it means. And finally, in verse 21, look at this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the rest of this section, verses 22 all the way through 6-9, he unpacks what he means by this. Basically, spirit-filled Christians, they're humble, and they demonstrate peaceful and orderly lives by submitting to those who are in authority over them. Because he goes on to say, wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. But he also has some things to say for the husbands and for the fathers and for the masters. But there's an orderly submission to those who are in authority. And it's not just in the church, but it's also in the home. It's also in the workplace. So what do you not see here? You know what you don't see? You don't see a lot of the charismatic craziness in here, do you? This is the one place in the New Testament actually commands believers to be filled with the Spirit, and you don't see anything about rolling around on the floor, shaking in convulsions, mumbling of this nonsense gibberish, or anything kind of like these mystical experiences. This is what Spirit-filled living looks like. Joy, peace, contentment, humility, harmony. This is the fruit of walking in godly wisdom. This can characterize your life if you make it a priority to understand the Lord's will and be filled by means of the spirits. And I would say our desire and our prayer should be just like David's that he wrote in Psalm 143. His prayer was this, teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have clearly revealed yourself and your will in your word, that we can hold it in our hands, that we can know it, that we can live by it, because you also have not left us without resources. You have given us your spirit to indwell us, and in our dependence upon your power working through him in our lives, we can be led by him to walk as you've called us to walk, in a manner worthy of you, in newness of life. Father, we, we, we saw Paul's heart for the Ephesians and really his heart for, for all the saints. And we can pray the same prayer. We have the same desire we see that he had for us. Father, we pray according to the riches of, you, of your glory that you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit and your inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. 
that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.